0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world download the app or subscribe to the daily newsletter to get a daily dose of news that will keep you on top of what's happening in China. We are coming to you this week from the studios of the Council on Foreign Relations in Manhattan. I'm Jeremy Goldkorn, joined of course by shampoo advertisement model and former minister for the suppression of barbarian lies for Baidu, Kaiser Guo. How you doing, KK?
1: dog. <laughs> I'm all right, man. I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying my time here in New York, definitely. So, Today, we are joined by Rob Schmitz, who has been radio correspondent uh, for Marketplace in Shanghai since 2010. You know, you've you've heard him on our show before. He was the guy who came on to destroy, utterly, the fabulous Mike Daisy, who made up all sorts of idiotic stories about children working in iPhone factories. So hey, uh, you were a Peace Corps volunteer in 1995. You've worked as a journalist both in the US and in Asia since then. So how are you, Rob, man? Good to have I you am back.
2: well, I'm well, thank you Thank you for having me on This is a market improvement, this studio, from your last dig <laughs> <laughs> I don't dare say it is
1: uh, It's unfortunately not our permanent home uh, <laughs> but So today you're here to talk about your new book The Street of Eternal Happiness Which The Economist has called A Portrait of China From the Stories of a Single Shanghai Street A Poignant Microcosm And the New York Times review noted that Schmitz's eye for scenes and ear for dialogue Give an immediacy to his stories uh, Welcome back to Seneca, man it's good to Thank you. you. It's great
2: to be back here.
1: So let's set the scene, Rob. When did you move to Changlelu, which you've translated
0: as the Street of Eternal Happiness? Uh, and what can you tell us about the neighborhood?
2: I moved to Changlalu Le on, uh, let's see, it was in July of 2010. I had just been assigned uh, the Marketplace China correspondent, and we moved my, so it was my, my wife and my uh, my now eldest son, but we only had one son back then, Rainy. We moved to this by far the least interesting place on the street, a complex called The Summit, which is a kind of a large apartment complex covered in white bathroom tiles.
1: As so many buildings are.
2: <laughs> it, was, it was like the, kind of the hallmark of the, of the 90s and the 2000s kind of architectural style in China. And from there, I, I started to explore a little. And this was an interesting time in Shanghai because you know, 2010 was the, the year that, that Shanghai hosted the World's Fair. And, uh, you know, Shanghai had uh, done a lot of building uh, to get to that point. They had built all these subway lines. Um, they had sort of rebuilt the city, uh, constructed the city, you know, for 20 years before that. The whole city was sort of a big construction site. And, uh, and there it was, ready. And so I arrived amidst uh, a pretty interesting kind of background. Uh, and Changlulu, uh, the street that I ended up focusing on, is... It's sort of it's you know it's a street inside the French the former French concession uh, of Shanghai you know the French set up this neighborhood uh, around 150 years ago I mean, it's sort of distinctive because it has uh, you know these trees that sort of line the London plane trees that line all of the all of the boulevards in the neighborhood uh, you guys have been there obviously and you know this place
0: and a lot of foreigners like to yeah, live there they do
2: hmm. yeah a lot of foreigners like to live there foreigners set it up and so it attracts foreigners uh, now uh, you know with a with a nice little break in between those two foreigner periods
0: (laughs) (laughs) but your book of course is not really about foreigners it's
2: about it is not no I, i two years after i arrived uh you know i'm the only correspondent for marketplace and i cover china's economy and i wanted to sort of take a step back from the sort of brutal news cycle that you sort of get used to as a journalist in china sort of the twitter universe of china and and I'm unfamiliar
1: with this, <laughs> yeah,
2: are you? yeah, yeah, sort of and and so I, I wanted to I wanted to take a step back from that and focus on on just real people. and I, I tried to figure out a way to do that. and I thought, well, why don't I just you know I wanted to do something about I wanted to take like a geographic place and just kind of focus on it like almost like an anthropologist would over a period of time because I wanted to do I wanted to do this over a year. and after a while, I just realized, you know why don't I just focus on the street that I live on? Because you're lazy. Because I'm lazy. Because I didn't really want to move very far. (laughs) No, and in fact, fact, the reason I did that was because I was so busy that I, you know, basically this was the only thing I could probably manage, you know, doing these features on just normal folks who live and work along uh, the street that I live on, this one single street in Shanghai.
0: And when you met these, uh, these people, I mean, did you initially sort of make friends with them without telling them what your purpose was? Or did you introduce yourself as somebody who's working on a series of radio? I plan on, on
1: chronicling, you know, the everyday.
2: Well, it's hard for me to sort of sneak up on people because I have, an, I have a shotgun microphone in my hand. And so when I—that's a
0: bit of a giveaway that you're yeah, not—you're uh, not just coming. Not only to make am I friends. a Lauai,
2: but I, I've come a Lauai with a very large microphone, and and it's a shotgun, so it's like this—it's this, this enormous microphone, this big like thing that looks like a ferret on top of it. <laughs> um, and and you know if that's not daunting enough, you know, and and for for a lot of folks, you know, that was just way too much for them. They said, no way, I don't want to talk to you. But surprisingly, most people that I approached for the initial radio series, were totally down with talking to me because I wasn't there to talk to them about what was going on in politics or anything like that. I just wanted to talk to them about their lives. And a lot of folks that live on the street, um, they own little shops. They're business owners. And so when you step into their shop, you know, that's, that's their territory. They feel comfortable in that territory. And I would usually start by asking them questions about their business. You know, uh, how much money are you making? Yeah, that's funny. That's what Chinese people always
1: ask me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? And that's what they ask me too, right?
2: And so I think as an economics reporter, that in some ways has been really nice. Because, I, I'm, you know, the first questions aren't these really kind of sensitive questions. You know, a, lot of, a lot of my first questions to folks normally are, how much money do you make? How much money did you make a few years ago? How have things changed economically for you? And that's something that I think most Chinese are totally fine with answering. Because they ask me that question usually, too, right? Much (laughs) easier to
0: answer than, you know, what do you think of the government, basically? Yeah. Yeah.
2: But, you know, after a while, you know, the questions sort of lead in that direction naturally. You know, you start talking about the economy. And, and of course, everything's tied up in politics in China in some ways. And so I think those maybe what are considered sensitive questions start to kind of come out sometimes. And, and, And it's interesting how that happens.
1: Yeah, so so talk a little bit about the geography of the area. I mean, so Changlu is is in the French Concession. So how does that differ from other neighborhoods of Shanghai? I mean, what's what's peculiar about this particular neighborhood?
2: Well, what's really peculiar, I think, are the trees, like I mentioned before,
1: the French um, the, planks, the, the right? London plane trees, because uh-huh.
2: those those really, I think, and the way that they prune them still today. Is really distinctive. They do something that's called pollarding, which means that they, they 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 basically stunt their growth over the entire lifespan of the tree, so that the trees are are constantly they, they can't grow up, and so they grow sideways. They grow into each other, making mm. these long green canopies. Yeah. Exactly. So that and the reason that part of the reason that they do that is to offer a lot of shade uh, during the hot summers of Shanghai to offer protection from the rain. And it's funny because a lot of these trees are also. They they kind of look like goalposts, and the reason that they, they they prune them that way is is because when typhoons come through, uh, the wind can go through them without without knocking Knock them down. down right. Yeah, um, and these are trees that were were sort of planted throughout uh, the civilized world in the 19th century. So you see a lot of these trees in Rome. You see them in New York City. Actually, the the uh, the symbol for the Parks and Rec Department in New York is a London plane leaf. Oh, yeah, and so you see them especially like if you go to Bryant Park. They're planted all over Bryant Park. Uh, they're in Sydney. They're in Buenos Aires. So it's interesting. That around that time of, uh, you know, around that historical time, these, these were planted all over the place. And uh, because they're good urban trees, they, they soak up uh, smog very well. And and so that's the biggest distinctive, uh, I think, quality of this neighborhood as well as just the way that the, the roads are. And, and the fact that I think Shanghai, the, the city government, has done a pretty good job, I would say, at, at preserving the look of the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there's a lot of complaints about, uh, you know, so many things that the Chinese government has done. But I think the, the one thing that they've done pretty well is they've they've, they've preserved that kind of look uh, of that section of the city. Because when you go there, it's very distinctive. But when you go to Jing'an, for example, that was the old British concession, that has a different look to it. It's, it's more urban. It's more condensed, right? It's, it's more dense. There's, there's more people um, you
1: still see some trees but it's it's just it's more buildings really i mean shanghai's government has done fairly well i mean in my estimation in terms of preservation of old buildings as well what about in in gentrification that must be happening i mean yeah. it's not just the, the the foreigners who aren't necessarily the rich people anymore no, China, no God who, who are no. moving in right no i mean most of the, the folks in the,
2: in that you know complex that i live in uh, you know it's a nice complex i mean most most of them are rich chinese
1: right and uh, but the folks that you talk to mm-hmm aren't they're not right um yeah. how how are they responding to the influx of all of these uh wealthier people
2: well a lot of them make their money off of this so i think for them it's not a bad thing you know because you know actually see two or three of the folks that i focus on who are main characters in the book uh come from somewhere else are yd rent and so they they're they're you know they, they came you know to make money in the city and so they depend on this capital for, for their livelihood. You know, Zhao Ling, one of the characters yeah. that I focus on, she's a she's a flower shop owner. And so, you know, she not only uh, depends on, you know, wealthy Chinese for her business, but she also depends on the government. Because for a long time, before Xi Jinping came into power, uh, the government, would, you know, you would have the city government or the district government would have these banquets. And she would, she would basically cater these banquets. And they, they, they'd buy so many flowers from her. And actually, after... T.C.P. came into power with the anti-corruption campaign, suddenly she lost all these orders because that was sort of seen as excessive. And so a lot of these austerity measures um, had a pretty interesting impact on some of the folks that, that I focus on in the book.
0: Uh, is she unhappy about that? I she mean, is.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk to her a lot about. Yeah, she, I mean, every time I, you know, we, we, we she, one of the biggest things that she loves to talk about, obviously, she loves to complain a lot, obviously, like, like you know, many people on the street, but she, she complains about money. You know, and she's not making as much as she used to uh, five, 10 years ago. And, and and that's a big problem for her. And so we actually had a very interesting conversation one time when when her son was around. And her son is, is a really educated guy, despite the fact that uh, he, he was a dropout from high school. And he's a big Xi Jinping supporter uh, because he, he, he believes that Xi Jinping um, is going to kind of lead China into... You know, he. I think he, he's something kinda, about a dream. Or <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the Chinese dream. But I think, I think that he likes Xi Jinping because he does believe there's a lot of problems that Xi Jinping is addressing, uh, like corruption. I think was his, one of his biggest complaints. But it's interesting because his mom, you know, sort of thrives off of that.
1: <laughs> so she's pro-corruption, basically. Right <laughs> she's.
2: Well, she's pro-money, you know, she's pro-making money. And basically, you know, the the whole system, you know, money went, you know, corruption makes the world go round in some ways, you know, and and I think that that's starting to change a little.
0: Let's talk about some of the other characters in the book. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about C.K.? He's quite a a curious individual.
2: CK owns a a sandwich shop on the street, and uh, he has a pretty interesting background. I think he's he's well, he's the youngest character in the book. He's, uh, he's in, now he's in, he's in his early thirties.
1: So uh, CK's sandwiches and accordions, or something like that. Yeah. So
2: he he has a yeah. So he sells accordions over the phone now, and then he has a sandwich shop that he set up that basically makes no money. Um, it's starting to make money now, though. Finally. It's a
1: front for the accordions. Yeah,
2: and 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 so
1: which are like crack. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know
2: this this sales combination. You know where else but in China could you find this type of sales combination? <laughs> right, this guy's like peddling sandwiches and then peddling accordions on the side. Right, it's kind of crazy. But so CK grows up in in, in uh, Hengang, which is a industrial city in, in Hunan province. And he's sort of a miserable childhood. You know, he has an abusive father. Um, he's an only child. His parents get divorced. And this is back in, in the 1980s where divorce was sort of rare. Um, and he, he attempted suicide when he was pretty young. I wrote about that scene in the in the, in the first chapter. But then he sort of picks himself up. He um, He's a musician. He actually is a big fan of yours, Kaiser. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah Maybe he, he
1: can come join us on accordion. That would be somewhere. great.
2: And he's, he still plays pretty well. And so he got a... He he was able to get into university in, in Guangdong, and he studied the accordion. And then after he graduated, he uh, got a job with Pearl River, uh, which is a, a large state-owned enterprise that makes instruments in, in China. And uh, he was on their accordion line, and he was a manager of the assembly line for accordions. It was a great job, right? This is a, a kind of an iron rice bowl job. And, and he... Uh, Totally got sick of it. He hated it. And he just
1: quit. Well, back then it was from each accordion to his needs and to each <laughs> accordion to his abilities.
2: Exactly. And so he quits this job. And his his parents sort of, you know, his parents have already lost their jobs because this, this was a, you know, in the 90s, his parents both worked for SOEs as well. And they both, they both lost their jobs you know, during the, the privatization of the 90s. And um, they were pretty angry about it. But then he found this job um, working for Polverini, which is an Italian accordion maker. And Polverini had sent an Italian engineer to Shanghai to start up an assembly line to make accordions uh, in Shanghai. And he hired C.K. Uh, as, as as his kind of sideman. And and from there on, C.K. figured out how to assemble an accordion, which is a pretty difficult thing to do because these are pretty complicated instruments. Right? Yeah, yeah. And he had to manage an assembly line full of uh, full of workers and, and basically teach them how to do it um, so he, he became an engineer, you know, by by not by not by an education not by like a, a university, but but, but they're doing something. Um, he learns how to do this. He becomes a sales manager for the, for the company inside of China. He makes a lot of money and he, he probably makes more than the average American right now. So from that job. And then with that money, he establishes this sort of slightly ill-conceived sandwich shop after taking a trip to Chicago. He's inspired by the, he sees a sandwich shop and he thinks, this is amazing. You know, and, 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 and he comes back home and decides to buy a, a second floor space across the street from where I live. And he calls it Second Floor Your Sandwich. And the problem is that it is on the second floor. And because of these plane trees I was just talking about, you can't see
1: it. Uh, it's completely right. invisible,
2: you know. It's completely obscured oh, by these trees, and so he doesn't have many people. I mean, once you get inside this place, it's great. It's a beautiful little shop, and it's a beautiful cafe. You can just hang out in there all day, but uh, no one can find it.
1: No, but he's not like been turned on to Why my I mean, is he like?
2: <laughs> no. Well, he's. He, I think they, I think they actually have, well, so the interesting thing about that shop is that it's, it's across the street from an enormous skyscraper called the center where oh, yeah, it's like Ogilvy yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 you yeah. know, a lot of the, a lot of the marketing yeah, yeah. firms I'll have their offices some time in that there. Yeah. Right. And so on, you know, I think he was naturally thinking, well, you know, on their, on their lunch break, they'll come and, and eat my sandwiches. But the problem was, is that, you know, a lot of folks weren't interested in eating sandwiches. They, they, they wanted some cheaper food.
1: Damn. So you've lived in Shanghai now since 2010 but you've also traveled pretty widely in China. What is there that's particularly shanghainese about the characters and the stories in your book? I mean, you know, you can you can talk about a couple of the other guys. I mean, we don't want to spoil it for everybody but you know, Auntie Fu, Mr. Clean, uh, you know, <laughs> Wang Shi what's would if you were to, you know, write a, a similar book about people on a street in Beijing, would it come off really differently? I don't think something? so. Honestly,
2: okay. I, I, you know, the answer to that question is, is that I don't think there's anything specifically Shanghainese about any of the characters that I write about. Uh, you know, and I I went into well, it thinking that well, a couple
1: that, of them are whitey, So I guess that well,
2: yeah, and and a couple of them are you know Shanghai Ren, and 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 you know Sahain. one of yes, yeah, and and they one of them doesn't speak Mandarin, he speaks Shanghainese. Oh wow, yeah, do you
1: do you? I don't. Okay, so, so, so how I, did you? No, when I was <laughs> yeah, I was a visiting, Yeah,
2: no, I, I had my assistant with me. Oh wow, yeah, she's from Shanghai, so she was translating, um, and that's actually uh, Mayor Chen, who is the unofficial mayor of Maggie Lane, the plot of land uh that has this really interesting history um that still continues to this day
0: yeah so i mean uh, the, you can you talk a little bit about that i mean the yeah. the chen Zhongdao and xia Guo yeah and their decade-long battle against the forced demolition of their home
2: so, so when when i first moved in to the summit which is this apartment complex that we live in um out my living room window so out the out the, so i the, I have two windows on both sides of the of the, of the apartment. On one side is Chang Le Lu. Other side is this enormous vacant lot full of weeds, stray cats, rats, and these burned out homes, these Shirkumen homes, these these, uh, these traditional homes in Shanghai. And, and it's it's almost it's half a block, so it's it's quite large. And when I first moved in, I thought, what what is what is this? Uh-huh. You know, because this is a really nice neighborhood why hasn't this been developed? What's the story here? And when I started asking around, I kept hearing rumors. uh, And the rumor was that someone had been murdered there. And so I decided, and the other thing was, is that there were still people inside this vacant lot living in these like half destroyed homes. And I I was trying to make sense of that too, thinking, are these squatters? What is this? And so there's an entrance on Wuyuanlu, which is uh, this street that's kind of parallel to Changlelu. And I ended up uh, finding a time when the guard was, there was a security guard there, when the guard was on, on lunch, and I just kind of let myself in. And I got to meet uh, some of the folks that lived inside, and they sort of told me the story of what had happened here. And what had happened was when Shanghai was making way for the World's Fair, um, there was a lot of neighborhoods that were raised, and this was, this was one of them. But they... This this neighborhood was originally slated to be sort of redesigned to 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 look like a Shirkumen neighborhood. Uh, and and the agreement at first was that folks could move back into their homes there. Ah. So they
0: were gonna destroy the old houses and yes. then build fake.
2: Exactly. New houses Make that a jada Shirkumen oh. kind right. of like Lilong, right? And that's not what happened. What happened was once once Shanghai got the bid for the, the World's Fair, they changed the terms. And they started offering um, compensation packages to the people in, the, in that lane. And they started moving them out to the exurbs of, of Shanghai. And, of course, like a lot of these situations that we've seen over and over throughout China, especially in urban China, you know, there's always holdouts, right? And so, of course, there was this group of holdouts that didn't want to move. They wanted to stay in their home. Uh, Chen Zhongdao, you mentioned, he, his, his father had uh, bought uh, his home uh, with gold. And, and so, you know, this was a home that, that, that you know, he, he, he strongly believed, like, I own this home. This is my home. You can't take this from me. And he, he wanted to at least to live in the neighborhood. But, you know, the district government of Xiu Kui uh, did, not, did not really agree to those terms. They, uh, they sold the land to a developer, and that developer ended up um, using some pretty strong-arm tactics to get rid of people. And one of the things that they did is they started lighting fires um, at the base of their homes to scare them out. Wow! And one of those one of those instances um, in 2005 went very very bad. And uh, at night they set fire to one of the homes where an elderly couple was inside. They were in their 80s, and the uh, the 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 husband uh, had served with the PLA um, in the Korean War, so he was a, he was a war veteran. And they died; they burned to death.
1: And it was clearly the developers that had done. That. Did these fuckers get their comeuppance or? Uh, yes. No so good.
2: what happened after that? <clears throat> in two thousand six, there was a trial. The developer, which was, his name is Chen Kai, ended up. Uh, there were three men, two two death two reprieve death sentences and one life sentence. Okay. After that, for was murder. this for
0: the thugs who did it or for for management of the company? For the
2: thugs who did it,
1: right? It's and
0: it was thugs. not the
2: management got off, right? Yeah. And and so those and what, what what was really interesting about that case, and I'm gonna go away from the Maggie Lane case here just for a second. Later on when I started looking into what was on the land before the summit, the place that I lived in, I discovered that there was also a death by fire for that land to clear that
1: land. And and that explains the poltergeist activity in your home. Right? <laughs> okay.
2: But when I when I looked into that. I found the there was a man who had been burned to death oh, for the land that I live on. I found his widow, and she now, after that happened, she um, you know she's in the book too. Her name is Xi Jen. So Xi Guojian is is, is, is like very similar names here, but she her name is Xi Guojian, Xi Guojian, and her son uh, Zhu Weiqi. They're both characters in my book. Who you know, you know, Jew, uh, Wait, she lost his dad, and she, and she lost her, her husband. But what happened was the the same guy, who started that fire in Maggie Lane, had burned uh, this man to death for the, the property that I lived on. And that Jesus. was that happened in 1996. It happened ten years earlier, and it was not ruled a murder. Uh, when the police the police said that uh, they 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 listened to these these uh, thugs. Uh-huh. And The thug said, "Oh, he set himself on fire." Yeah, right. And he got off. And so ever since that day, uh, the widow, who, who I, pro- I profile in the book, she petitions, and she's been petitioning. You know, she's one of these petitioners, and she she petitions all the way up to Zhongnanhai. So she gets arrested over and over and over up in Beijing. Um, she goes out in front of Zhongnanhai, and she throws leaflets, and then she's tackled. She's taken to Majialou which is a, a, a detention center for petitioners up there. Yeah. And then um, they, she's usually in there for two weeks, three weeks. They let her out. She goes straight back to High and does it again. She's done this dozens of times. And her son, Chi, when she started doing this, he was in middle school. You know, and her son was also, you know, obviously, he had lost a father and his home, right? They were given a small apartment as a conversation. So her son, her son lives alone. He's studying by himself. And when I asked her, you know, I I interviewed her um, four years ago for the first time, and I asked her, you know, I I was almost scared to ask know, what what happened to your son? He said, she tells me, oh, he's at Cornell.
1: Oh, my God. And I said, he's
2: at Cornell University, she said, in the United States? And she said, yeah. I said, what's he doing there? Well, he's getting his PhD in economics. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: And so... Let it never be questioned again. The Chinese people are a resilient people. Yeah, and so um, – <laughs> Wow,
2: that's amazing. It is amazing. And and this Wei Chi, he, he's one of – honestly, like, in this book, he's one of uh, – he, he's really inspiring. I mean, this kid, this kid, he's gone through so many awful things. He was 10 years old when his father was burned to death. And, um, you know, it obviously had a very deep impact on him. he Now he's he like threw himself into close on 30 now, right? Yeah. And now he's, yeah, he's 30 years old now. And he, um, he works for uh, UBS. Uh, he's, a, he's a derivatives trader for UBS in Hong Kong.
1: <laughs> oh, man. And I thought he turned out to be a good guy. Well, well. <laughs>
2: yeah. well you know, he's, he's been through a lot. And uh, I think what he wants is um, economic security. And, and I think it's interesting. So his story is one of the, the stories from that, that section of the book. And actually, I'm doing a, I, <clears throat> I'm doing a, a marketplace story that's going to air, I think, next week uh, uh, about, about him. I went down to Hong Kong a few weeks ago just to kind of check in with him again. And, and uh, we did a final uh, radio
1: piece on him. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Clean. Um, I was, I was <laughs> saying, like the U.S., I mean, China is a country where there are a lot of advertisements for health remedies, for medicines, for various, you know, snake oils, uh, doctors, uh, much of which is just outright quackery. Uh, and I'd like to, at this point to remind everyone that I no longer actually work for Baidu. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you tell us about mis- Mr. Clean? <laughs> Tell us about Mr. Clean and his sexual potency. Oh, man. Uh, his sexual potency potions. So Mr. Clean is a guy, one of the many. Is he, is he, I mean, is he bald? Is that yes. why you call him Mr. He Clean? He looks like Mr. Clean. He's
2: like the he's the Chinese version of Mr. Clean. He's a he's a retired PLA guy. He's an army guy Muscular from China. Muscular and bald, and he's really big, and he's bald. He's uh, probably around sixty years old. I met Mr. Clean. And virile, um,
1: virile very virile. Right?
2: Yes, he is, uh, or claims to be. Uh, I met him uh, on one of Auntie Fu, who is one of the main characters in the book. Auntie Fu is in her 60s. Um, she's married, uh, her husband, uh, his name is Uncle Fung, and he makes Song yobing, uh and sells them out of his kitchen on the street.
1: I fucking love Tsung Yo Bing. Bing. He's a, his
2: Tongyo Bing, he charges a little extra because he thinks they're much better than anyone else's. And Are these
1: the deep fried or the dry pan fried version? It's the pan fried. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah.
2: And so he and he he and his wife don't like each other at all. And they, they, they bicker and they argue all the time. He's more of a practical gentleman. Uh, he believes in hard work. Auntie Fu comes from You know, this this generation, she was born, uh, you know, around the time that that China was, quote unquote, liberated. And she grew up during the, the Cultural Revolution, right? And so she grew up not really having much of an education. She was of this generation that sort of, you know, were sort of lost. And so she ended up
1: so she believes in strife and and yes, <laughs> struggle.
2: well well but you know the one thing you know she was sent you know she was sent to to you know they they, they met each other in a bingtuan in 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 Xinjiang, in Xinjiang. yeah and so they were okay, so they let's were,
1: explain just for listeners who might yeah. not know what a bingtuan is uh so the bingtuan Jeremy you you're, you're our definer let's
0: uh, so they were uh, People's Liberation Army troops that were sent to basically uh, build
1: stuff in Xinjiang, yep. farms and infrastructure. And to colonize. Yeah. And, and to, to colonize. colonize right? yeah. So yeah. they're yeah. these large yeah. military colonies, essentially. Yep. And, and they control very significant business interests in Xinjiang. Yep.
2: And they still do today.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And so they were part of a Bing Tuan that uh, was established outside of Akersu in in uh, western Xinjiang province near Kyrgyzstan. And their their goal there was to turn desert into farmland, and of course this was impossible in this area, and they nearly starved to death. But they they met each other at one of these at one of these farms. Well. Wow. And and so she, you know, they she has this very romantic kind of memory of life in Xinjiang, even though um, his memory is is starkly different. He, he considers it a hellhole. Um, but she wants to go back there because I think she just cannot handle the, the society that surrounds her in Shanghai, this, this display of wealth, that everyone seems to be rich except me. What are they doing right that I'm not doing? And so she ends up getting involved in a lot of these investment schemes and a lot of these pyramid schemes. And Making herself poorer. Making herself poorer. She's dumping her pension from the bingtuan into endless pyramid schemes. And uh, so I, I write about this in the book about the, this variety of schemes that she's involved in. And I go to some of these investment meetings with her. And I over and over try to convince her that these are all scams. Um, but isn't, she's, that,
1: isn't that violating the prime directive in a way? I mean, does <laughs> she <you> not interfere?
2: <laughs> well... I like her very much. She's a friend yeah. of mine, and, okay. I, and I hate to see her. The thing is, she's not savvy, and and, and she's a, she's a perfect she's a perfect target for these types of schemes because she can't get on the internet. She can't afford the internet. I can, so I'm showing her all these things that I'm finding on Baidu about about the problems with these companies, right? And I, I print them out and I show it to her, and she still doesn't oh, believe have, them. I
0: have that kind of thing on Baidu. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, that's it, you guys. Bidu can be pretty progressive sometimes. <laughs> Here they are. I mean. um, so, you know, these were news items that I found, you know, basically saying that, okay, in this city, this company that she's investing in uh, was found to be a scam and all of the leaders were thrown into prison. And even when I showed her these things, she still didn't believe me. So one of, going back to Mr. Clean... The last chapter or the second to last chapter that I write about uh, Auntie Fu, she drags me to probably the most ridiculous uh, investment scheme uh, that that I've seen from her. And that was uh, a company that is a direct sales kind of company, a pyramid scheme, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that is centered around selling sexual health pads that you put in your underwear. You stick them on the inside of your underwear and the idea is that the um, traditional Chinese medicine-soaked pads inside the, the pad will, will basically draw out all of the toxins from that area
1: of your body. Well, yeah. Isn't that the area of the body that naturally dispenses toxins anyway? I mean, I don't know. Maybe my. my Kaiser, autonomy. you are correct. It is. Okay. That's what I was told.
2: But the toxins that these things uh, extract, according to the photos that uh, they showed us at this investment meeting, and I, I have them on my phone, I could show you. One. Oh, no. Listen, um, I don't Are, <laughs> I want to see are this. absolutely horrible. Um, it looked like black jelly. Uh, and, you know, they would, you know, the, the the interesting thing about this meeting is Mr. Clean would come in, the, you know, I was there, Auntie Fu's there, and then there's probably six or seven other older folks like that kind of are like her, and he's, he's got all these photos spread out over a conference table of pads before and after. <laughs> and, it's just, and the pads are called like these ridiculous names, like "Heavenly Happiness" and things like that. It's just, it was, it was the most bizarre, sad, and awful sort of meeting that she took me to. Oh, man! Uh,
0: in some ways, the uh, your book reminds me a little bit of Evan Osnos's book *Age of Ambition* in the sense that you know many of the stories you tell are connected with people's hopes and dreams, and of course, the Chinese dream is uh, one of Xi Jinping's favorite catchphrases. The concept does seem to have staying power. The, the idea yeah. of a Chinese dream, just because of, of what's going on in China right now, you know, whether you look at it from the, it the point the of, view of the of party or, yeah. or, or you know ordinary people's dreams. Do you think there is a common characteristic of of the people in your book, and in, in terms of what they dream about and what their hopes are?
1: Something that ties them together in that.
2: I think that the the common dream that they probably share is that. Except for Auntie Fu probably because she hasn't achieved this yet, is that a lot of their dreams go beyond money. And I think that for a long time
1: And this is surprising for Shanghai. Yeah, yeah you're right.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. For a long time, you know, when you look at China ever since reform and opening, the focus obviously was on, on money, on on improving your economic status, right? For the country as well as, as individually. But I think we've gotten to a point, obviously, in China, especially in places like Shanghai, where people are looking beyond that now. You know, these dreams are going everywhere. They're spreading like wildfire. They're, they, they could, it could be a dream of getting your, your, your child abroad to study in a, in a foreign university, right? And setting up camp there and maybe getting a, a passport. It could be a dream of finding spirituality, right? CK, for example, is a good example of this. You know, CK, after having this kind of failing business for a while, becomes a devout Buddhist and finds a master and studies under this master. And, and, and really, it, it, it really impacts his life. And so that's his dream.
1: From sandwiches to Sanskrit.
2: <laughs> oh, that's good, Kaiser. And then, you know, I think for someone like Mayor Chen and, and his wife, you know, their dream is is, is to, have, to have their property be, be deemed their property, to have, you know, to have personal property you know, to have rights to personal property, Mm. you know, to have equal rights, right? That that means something to them. Good luck. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I know. Good luck with that. I know, good luck with that. But I think, you know, when you're talking about the Chinese dream, in some ways, I I believe that the Chinese dream and the the conception of that has a lot to do with a reaction to these dreams that have kind of gone all over the place in China. And it's an attempt to corral all of those dreams, right? Probably too late. Into one dream for the the nation and the party, making sure that the party is the first thing that is in your dreams, and then everything, your know, your own personal dreams can go later.
0: Rob, there must have been other people you considered profiling for the book, but had to leave out in the end. Uh, can you yeah. talk about some of those people and yeah. why they didn't make the cut?
2: There were a couple uh, people in specific. One, one of one of these folks was um, he was a kung fu master um, who was in his seventies. And he sort of, there's a public park on the Eastern end of Changlelu. And he was sort of this guy who sort of ran the morning exercises at the park, you know, and we, you know, if you've been to parks in China, you sort of know these guys, like they're kind of the ringleaders. Um, you know, there's usually old folks dancing at five in the morning, but he was sort of leading the Kung Fu exercises and the Tai Chi exercises, the Tai Chi Chuan exercises in the park. And I got to know him, and um, he, he was a really interesting guy. But once I broached the topic of, hey, you know, I'm writing a book and I, I'd love to include you in this, he just said, no way. And, and I started to realize uh, after hearing his reason that he, he may not be completely stable mentally uh, because he said, no, the, 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 the dong are out to get me. And uh, they're they're going to assassinate me. And so I don't want any sort of attention placed on me. I I, I can't imagine why you would have not included such a character. I think I realized right there and then, maybe it's a good idea that I don't include him in this book. (laughs) So it's probably for the better. There's another gentleman that uh, runs a clothing shop that's actually not too far from where uh, Joshua Ling has her flower shop. And um, this guy, is he's a local. And, um, and he's gay and, uh, he, he runs this shop and he's, he's just a delightful man. And I really, I, you know, I, I visited him over and over I really liked him. And the thing is he has a sister who is constantly there outside. She sits on a lawn chair out outside on the, on the sidewalk and just hangs out there and he sits by her and they talk all day. But once she realized that I was there to you know, possibly write about him, uh, she would not have any of
1: it. And she, because it would, she, it would expose the shameful family secret of his homosexuality? That's right. Oh, God.
2: Yeah. And, and, uh, and that, that was unfortunate because had she not been in the picture, I think he would have been very open to that because oh, he man. talked a lot about it. Uh, it was a very big part of who he, who he is today. And, um, you know, and he was pretty well off. He was pretty successful. and He had a pretty good clothing shop. He actually, there's a lot of clothing shops around that stretch of the street that go up and 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 disappear within months because they just they're not selling the right thing. But he he actually had a pretty good eye for these things, and he he was there. He had been there for a long time.
1: So, Rob, you've worked as a print journalist, you've done radio for many years, and now you've written a book uh, and 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 have been on a podcast or two. <laughs> so, what, what, what do you think is the difference between? Let's no, not podcasts here, of course, but the difference between. I'm sorry. What do you think are the differences between these different types of media? Um, what do you find to be the most satisfying way of telling complex, compelling stories?
2: Ooh, that's a really good question. I think all of them have their strengths. I think, you know, radio for me, the reason I like radio so much is that it, it really boils down to the individual. You know, when you're, when you're with radio, it's, it's such an intimate medium. You know, you're you're speaking to one person, you're interviewing one person, and it really goes back to the original way that we conveyed information with each other. We told we stories, talk, right, right? It's exactly. the oral tradition, right? It's it's the original way that we conveyed any information, and I like that. I, I like I like that it gets down to the basics of conveying information, and I like the I like the honesty in it too, because you've got a microphone, right? And in China.
1: That just automatically makes people honest, right? Yeah. Well, no, but it,
2: it, what it does is that it establishes the relationship very clearly when you show up, right? You know, and I think that as a print journalist, it can be a little foggy sometimes. You know, you can show sneaking up sneaking around with a notebook, right? No, right? <laughs> no, I mean, that's I mean, I think, no, I think, I think, I think, I think it can be like that. You know, and I think, uh, you know, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm a radio reporter because I, I, I like, I like the medium because it. I, I'm able to tell human stories, and I like I like doing that, and I think the human stories in China are just fascinating.
1: I think you got to capture the best of both, though, because you you went at this from a sort of radio perspective, but then got to turn these long sort of, you know, slowly unspooled narratives into a book, which is yeah. also, you know, gives you room to unpack right. and, you know, put in the context. And yeah. And it, that's the
2: big limit to radio is that you only have about five or six minutes to tell a story and there's there's only
1: so much you can pack in there. Or 50 minutes if you're doing a podcast, which is
2: nice. <laughs> you and, guys are lucky. Yeah, we are. I mean, I,
1: I actually, I, I love this medium. I think it's a, it's a perfect medium for, you know, storytelling. I and, yeah. yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and you know with that, Rob, man, I, the book is is called "Street of Eternal Happiness." It's getting rave reviews. It just came out. It's today launch day. It, today is okay. Launch. So okay, so we're not sure when this actually goes, about. today uh, is is May seventeenth here in New York. Uh, so, congrats, man. Thank you. Yeah, you must be uh, your your third child now. Um, <laughs> so, before we get to recommendations, uh, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by Sup China. Uh, check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow Subchina on Twitter at at SupChina News or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News. And on we go to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you got for us? Um, there's a
0: podcast uh, produced by, I think, Longform, which is a magazine and website. Yeah, Longform, um, yeah. And uh, the podcast is pretty good. I mean, it depends on the guest, of course, just like our, ours does, but they have Longform interviews with interesting people so i just listened to one with uh, seymour hirsch
1: oh seymour hirsch wow well, wow, wow. he's an interesting it's slightly kooky and conspiratorially minded guy
0: yeah but really wonderful voice very very
2: entertaining to listen to him
1: ah uh, ha, ha ha rob what do you have for us
2: am i allowed to give uh, something that hasn't been released yet yes you are okay so i'm incredibly excited and this is something i haven't read it yet obviously but Um, It's a book that's going to come out very soon, I know, or at least later this year, maybe early next year. Um, It's a book by Ian Johnson. And it's—I'm uh, not even sure if I'm allowed to even talk about this yet. If he wants, oh, I know. Your we
1: all know he's working on a book. I mean, yeah. he's been on the podcast many times, and he's, yeah, okay, a, he's okay, a dear okay. friend. So, yeah.
2: but uh, I'm really excited to read uh, his next book because I, I know it's going to be about religion in China, right, and this right. is something that I'm absolutely fascinated by.
1: And yeah, he is. I mean, there's nobody who's more expert. Uh, and, You're completely right. Uh, yeah, and and sympathetic too. I mean, right. he himself is 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 uh. Is, is deeply steeped in this stuff, Jeremy. If you were or me were to, if you or I were to write such a book, I think we wouldn't be quite as fair, because you're a f- flaming fucking atheist. Right?
2: <laughs> he should have interviewed you guys for this book. Yeah, no, he,
1: he should have, man. It's not too late. Is I'll Ian give me a call, man. I'll. Um, yeah, good good recommendation. Yeah, Ian. Anything that Ian does, I I'm I have time for plenty of time for. Uh, my recommendation. Is in an app that that it's 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 few years old now, but I only recently revisited. I just got myself one of them nice new iPhone six pluses, and I'm I'm delighted by it. it it's a great thing to read on, and so I've been reading a lot more. I mean, I used to. You know, I don't like reading on my little iPhone, and I, I I don't always want to haul out my iPad when I want to uh, read. So the iPhone six is a terrific compromise, and and the perfect app for it is Flipboard. Uh, if you haven't revisited it. Um, in a while do so because it's it's just great it's just one of the best ways that you can get the stories that your people you know people that you follow on Twitter are posting um, and organize it by the categories that you're interested in I mean it's it's an addictive wonderful interface and I I just I cannot stop flipping through this stuff and just reading stories it's 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 great Flipboard. Take us
0: out, Jeremy. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and me, Jeremy Goldkorn. Special thanks this week to the Council on Foreign Relations, who have generously loaned us their studio space. And, of course, to Anla Chung, Soraya Darabi, and Amadeo Tumomilo from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca podcast. Thanks for listening. See you all next week.